The Bible is not reliable. You know, as I prepared for this, I realized that the sermon that Pastor Mark preached on in terms of the Bible being relevant goes hand in hand with the Bible being reliable. Because if you're going to say that the Word of God is relevant to me, first of all, you have to understand that the Word of God is reliable. Let's look at that for a minute. What does reliable actually mean? The adjective, consistently good in quality or performance, able to be trusted, a reliable source of information. The Bible, a reliable source of information. You know, there are many myths concerning the Bible as a text, as what it is, uh, as we look at that today. And what's interesting is there's all these arguments out there as why not to trust the Bible, why you can't trust what we have as the Word of God. And what's interesting about it is those arguments so often preclude someone from even willingness to investigate it, to find out if some of those myths are even true or not true. And so people continue to hold the word at a distance and not embrace it and not get involved in it. You know, Peter says that we should always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. And Luke says today in the Bible as we looked at the gospel, that many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have done what? Have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. It seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Certainty. You know, that word things that you have been taught really is the root word for logos, for word, that the words you have been taught, the words of Scripture, that you might know the certainty of these things. That the Bible is something that we can investigate, that we can study, that we can make sure that what we have here is, first and foremost, reliable, able to be trusted. Well, I don't want to look at some of those myths today that are out there concerning the text as it is. And the first would be textual myths. Let's look at a few of those on that next slide. First, the Bible was handed down orally. How can I trust it? This is a myth that's out there. If it was handed down orally, which it was, we can see that in the Bible, even from the children of Adam, who were the generation who began to worship, and these things were passed on from generation to generation until they were actually written down by Moses. How can I trust that that is reliable, that somebody didn't say it wrong, somebody didn't goof it up? I don't know if you've ever played that game, Telephone, it used to be called, where you whisper something in someone's ear and you go through a crowd of people and finally you hear it when it comes out and it's a lot of times totally different. That's, that's a game. That's not exactly what would take place when things were handed down orally. When things were handed down orally, they were spoken in front of a community. And part of what happens then is that the community makes sure that what is being told is reliable. For instance, I had a friend who 
uh, when he first got out of the seminary, went to a church, and every Sunday when they'd have communion, everybody would move over to the pulpit side of the church before communion started. Well, he was curious about that. He asked his elders why that was, and they gave him a number of different reasons. Well, obviously, this is where the gospel is proclaimed from the pulpit, and so we all move over to that side in honor of the Word becoming flesh and receiving the holy body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the other answers that he got was just that this is where the people gather together as one instead of being separated by the aisle to receive that body and blood. You know, he wondered about those things. And one time he was visiting one of the eldest members of the congregation and he happened to ask her, why is it that people move over to the pulpit side when communion is being served? This is what I've been told by the elders. And she laughed. She said, well, when I was a little girl, that's where the wood stove was in the winter. And our pastor was fairly old, and it took him a while to prepare the elements and get through everything. So everybody moved over to this side to stay warm. You see, people correct the, the inconsistencies that come up because that's part of a community, and that's what was handed down orally as these things happened. The community would have corrected anything that took place that was being said so that in order it would be preserved going forward. Well, how about the next one? There are a lot of mistakes and inconsistencies. Now we hear that a lot about the text. How do we respond to that? Well, one article says the first thing that we should do is say to someone who says that, well, aren't there a lot of mistakes and inconsistencies? Say, yes, there are. Let me tell you about them. And in fact, there are. If you look at any Bible, whenever there are footnotes, at the bottom of the page, that means that some of the texts that have been compared, there are some differences between them. But what we need to point out in any of these things, and what we call variances is the technical name for them, there are words like instead of an A, maybe the word the. Or there's something where the scribe who was copying put a note in to try and improve what that actually meant. But not in terms of doctrine ever. Just a word like what instead of how or something like that. All of these things can be compared. The evidence is there. You can look at the text. And the point is, when you see footnotes, when you see these things, it's not like anybody's ever trying to hide them. They're pointing out to you there are texts that say this as opposed to texts that say that. But as you read any of those footnotes or read any of those variants, you can easily see they don't change the meaning. It's less than 1% of the entire Bible of all the words in there that has any type of variant or inconsistency. And some of the other things that people say then as you look at accounts in the Bible, well, Matthew says it's two blind men Jesus healed. Mark says it's one blind man. You see, you can't be reliable. You know, it's interesting if you would talk to a trial lawyer about these things. You know, when witnesses come forward into a trial, if everything they say is exactly the same, the eyewitnesses, they would become suspect and they would say this, this testimony is no good because it's been rehearsed. What they look for is differences in testimonies, but still what they're trying to discern is the core thing involved in all those testimonies. So why would there be inconsistencies? Well, different people brought out different things. Maybe Matthew wanted to say there were two. Maybe Mark was just saying, well, the one of these became 
became a follower of Jesus. He was more important to us as a group, so it didn't matter that we talked about two or one. It's just the fact that Jesus did heal the blind man, some of these things that are out there. And if you investigate these, again, you will find out the facts around them. And then finally, there are no original documents. This is one that is important in antiquity because people always like to say you don't have, and Pastor Mark touched on this a couple of weeks ago when he preached on relevancy, on the, what's called the autographs. We do not have the original document in the hand of John, of Paul, of Matthew. Those things don't exist, nor of the Old Testament. We know that. I mean, a document thousands of years old, we don't have the original. What we have are copies. Does that mean it's not reliable? Does that mean it cannot be considered? Well, first and foremost, I want you to hear a quote about the Old Testament and how it was preserved on the next slide. This is a quote regarding what the group of people who were tasked with preserving the Word of God in Israel. Dr. Bernard Rahm says this, Jews preserved it as no other manuscript ever had been preserved. They kept records on every letter, syllable, word, and paragraph. They had special classes of men within their culture whose sole duty was to preserve and transmit these documents with practically perfect fidelity. Scribes, lawyers, and Masoretes, whoever counted the letters and syllables and words of Plato or Aristotle, Cicero or Seneca. Well, what does he mean? What would typically happen when they would begin copying? Because obviously scrolls would wear out and they had to make new copies all the time. Each page of the Old Testament had a value to it that would be added up by the people who were in charge of it. So if you took a page and each letter having a value, each breath mark, each dot or tittle as it's called in the Bible, everything was assigned a value. And so when you copied a page, that would all add up to a certain number. Now, they wouldn't know what that number is. The keepers of these things would. So as a page was copied, then it would be added up by someone else. If it didn't match the number that they knew it should be, it was destroyed, and they started over again. The other thing to realize is that those who were copying these things of the Old Testament, when you believe and you know in your heart this is the word from the living God, it is done with such care and such integrity that not even any mistake could ever be tolerated. And so this was passed on from generation to generation to make sure it was exact as it had been delivered to them. In fact, I know Pastor Mark alluded to what was called the Masoretic Text, this group of people who preserved the word for us. And up until the Dead Sea Scrolls, the only surviving copy we had was from about 1000 AD until the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were dated BC, were discovered. And it was funny, when those were matched up with the earlier copy that we had, it all matched exactly. It was so carefully preserved, we know what we have handed down is exactly what was written by Moses and by the prophets and by all those who wrote in the Old Testament. And then I also want to then talk about the New Testament documents that we have. And there's another slide I'd like you to look at here. It may be a little small, but I'll, and I'll try to go over this briefly. Obviously, there's a lot of data to this, and I can't cover it all in a sermon. Well, I could, but I don't know how long you want to be here. Um, but for instance, these are books in antiquity. 
There are books from Homer and from Caesar and from Plato in the New Testament. And the dates that they were written, for instance, Homer, 800 B.C., Caesar, 144 B.C., Plato, 400. The earliest copies that exist in antiquity, you see 400 B.C. for Homer, 900 A.D. for Caesar, 900 A.D. for Plato. The time gap is important because the closer you can get to the actual event happening, they always say the more reliable in antiquity that is. You have a 400-year time gap on Homer, a 1,000-year gap on Caesar, a 1,300-year gap on Plato. You have the number of copies, 643 for Homer, 10 for Caesar, seven for Plato. You saw that quote that Dr. Ram said, whoever counted the words and the syllables and the dots of Plato or Seneca, but yet as we look at the evidence for the New Testament, we have that writing date from 50 to 100 AD. We have uh, copies that exist within 50, within 100, within 150, 225 years. And we have over five 1,366 copies to compare, to allow us to study what we have is accurate. There are also then all those books outside of the New Testament from the church fathers where there are quotes of actual things. Do those line up with the copies? I mean, this is some of the work that goes in to make sure that what we have in the Word of God is reliable. We can trust what we have when we open our Bible. We can trust that the words are the words that were spoken 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago. Those very things that we hold on to and that give us confidence that as we read the word of the living God, it is spoken to us as it has been spoken forever. Well, let us look at another myth or argument that's out there. And it is, if the next slide, there are archaeological myths that are out there. First and foremost, for a while, this argument persisted that it was impossible for Moses to have written the Torah, the five, first five books, as there was no written language at that time that existed. So they're saying, well, this couldn't have happened. The Hebrews didn't have a written language at the time that Moses was supposed to have written the first five books as he took the oral tradition and began to write it down and then moved into Exodus and all the other books from the things that he had experienced. Well, that was true until 1975 when they discovered some tab tablets that were called the Elba tablets, and they dated from a thousand years before Moses had ever come, and it was written language that proved, yes, I guess we were wrong. Written language did exist, and Moses could have written this down. And so that myth was debunked by archaeology. We know this one, I, I'm sure you've heard this, many of the places and the names and the cities and all those things that we find in the Bible are often criticized. Well, we can't find any evidence of this. This city never existed. These people never existed. And yet, as archaeology goes on, it proves things. I want you to see a quote from a gentleman on archaeology. The next slide. This is from Dr. Nelson Gluck, who is the president of Hebrew Union College. He was president at over 1,500 archaeological sites. He says this, It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. 
Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. It is incredible the evidence that exists out there. And often as people, the skeptics say, the Bible says this, it never existed. Archaeological digs happen and then they say, oh, I guess it was true. This, you can find this stuff online. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of incidents uh, that things have been found in archaeology that prove the things that before people said never existed, the Bible is wrong. And basically, I think it's a matter of time for those that are going forward. Uh, the more time we have, the more digs there'll be, and the more they'll find things that say, gosh, I guess what was written down in the Bible was true. There was a people called the Hittites. There was a king by this name. There is a city, and it's uncovered, and it's below this. All these different things. The next myth that I kind of want to touch on then as I'm trying to get through this is the Jesus myth. And that's the next slide. Jesus never existed. That's one of the myths and one of the arguments that we say, well, you know, it's just found in the New Testament. We don't know that this is true. We can't ever prove that Jesus existed. Um, that really is out there. There are people who say Jesus never lived. This was all made up by the church. It was all written by a group that, of disciples that got together to promote this whole idea. Well, that is a myth. Outside of the New Testament, there are historical documents which are held as historical, which are held as reliable, that talk about Jesus, that talk about his followers, that talk about what the followers believed about Jesus. There's Tacitus and the annals of imperial Rome, Suetonius, the life of Nero and Claudius, Josephus, who is a Jewish historian who is writing from an antagonistic point of view, still talks about Jesus, a man who was wise and knowledgeable, a man who did miracles among us. He won't call him the Messiah because obviously that's not what he wants to prove. But he mentions that Jesus lived. He talks about John the Baptist. He talks about other prophets. He talks about Herod. Talus, who is quoted by a man named Julius Africanus, wrote about 52 AD, and he quotes him as saying, things about Jesus, about the Christians, about their followers, about what they believe that this man Jesus came back to life. So there are all these things out in antiquity that exist that when someone says to you, the Bible is not reliable, the text is not reliable, the archaeology is not reliable, that Jesus never existed, people, it is reliable, it is out there, these things are true. And they can be tested. And like I said at the beginning, that's the problem. Most people will take the statement, say the Bible isn't reliable, but won't go through the effort to look at the evidence to find out if it is true or not. And let me tell you something. Those who do, it's usually an amazing thing. Those who are skeptics, those who don't believe it, and those who begin investigation, they end up being Christians as they look at the evidence. You know, that's part of our faith. I want you to go to the next slide. You know, faith is a combination of things. And I have the two sides because I want you to look at this. The first side would be as we bring a child to be baptized into the faith. The Holy Spirit creates in that child trust, belief. You know, that childlike faith that we talk about. It is the gift of God that he gives. And what do we say to parents then? We say, as this child grows, we want you to put in their hands 
the scriptures. We want their knowledge base to grow. Of these three things, then when that knowledge grows, we come to that point of confirmation. And confirmation is really that point of assent where we're saying, yes, I have studied. Yes, I believe in this. And I believe it to be true. This is my faith. That's assent. But we also know then there is the pathway for those who have not come to the Lord as infants in the waters of baptism. And so then it begins from this standpoint that they first of all have to study, have to have knowledge of what the scriptures say and have to investigate them. And then they come to that point of saying, you know, as I've investigated, this, this looks like it's true. This looks factual. And as the Holy Spirit works through that word, we know then the Holy Spirit creates trust in their heart, trust to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God who has come into this world to redeem them. And so while there are those two pathways, it exists the same that our faith is grounded, not in some ethereal thing out there that we just think, wow, God's a nice thought. God is actual. God is in history. Jesus existed. Jesus died and rose again. These things are true. They can be investigated. And the Holy Spirit creates that faith and trust in our hearts so that we may cling to this word in all situations, knowing that as we, we read the words of our Savior, as we read the words of the apostles, as we read the things that are in here that are both good for us to reprove and correct and to give us hope in all situations, we know that we can trust what we have, that God speaks to us, that the Holy Spirit works through these words to bring faith to our heart, to give us hope, to show us our future that we can proclaim Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. What a comfort it is that our God has created the Word and handed it down to us that can be tested, that can be put through all the rigors and all the things that need to happen so that we can be sure, just not only in our faith, but also in the reliability that the book can be trusted. Why is this good? Well, we, we believe this Word because of the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's why we're here. But as we're talking to friends, as we're talking to people who believe these myths, who believe that these things aren't true, we should have the knowledge to be able to speak to them, to be able to tell them what the truth is so that they can also come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. I hope that this myth, that the Bible is not reliable, seems to be a little more debunked to you. It's out there. You can investigate it. There is so much research and so many things out there to help you on this journey to give you that confidence. But above all, we know we have the confidence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who said, I am with you always. I will never leave you or forsake you. I am the truth, the way, the life. You can trust in me, and I will bring you home to be with me in heaven one day. That is the confidence of our faith. May it be forever sure in the word of God. Amen.